Today's scripture is from Mark chapter 3, verse 7 and 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Good afternoon, New Hope. Happy New Year to you all. I, uh, it's really good for me to be here. I'm really happy to be here with you guys celebrating the New Year. 2016 is upon us. It has arrived. Um, I don't know about you guys, but 2016 has already brought some new things to, to our life, me and my family. I mean, we've got a, we've got a, a new little baby at home, we, uh, yeah, which we thank God for um, immensely. We have um, a lot less sleep at home, which we are also trying to thank God for. And um, we have a new church, which we thank the Lord for um, immensely. Um, I don't know what else the new year has for us. Really, beyond that, it's a mystery. And I think that if I were to ask you the same question, what does 2016 have in store for you, you might have to say, who knows? Great things, things, indeed. Great things. We know that much. I think we could also say it's probably not going to be easy. Probably not all easy things. Maybe some challenges. Maybe some new responsibilities. Maybe some new pressures. Maybe some... um, some difficulties that we can't see right now. In fact, a lot of what we face in 2016 is gonna, it's gonna be made up of the stuff that we carry over from 2015, right? So many of us are bringing with us from 2015 the, the same jobs, the same families, many of the same responsibilities, the same relationships. In some cases, those things that are already stretching us in 2015 may stretch us even more in the new year. The pressures of last year don't disappear in 2016, do they? It would be nice if they did, but they don't magically. They're following us into the new year, and and we don't know what new pressures might await us to. Um, In the passage that was just read for us from Mark chapter 3, we see a glimpse of Jesus Christ, a scene from his life. And in this scene, we see a man operating under extreme circumstances. So many factors are converging around Jesus Christ in these few verses. Things are getting increasingly complicated for him. And in fact, they're getting dangerous for him too. It might even look to us like Things are getting out of control in Jesus Christ's life. There's opposition all around him. I don't know if you grasped that or or saw that as it was read to us. There's there's opposition all around. So what I'd like us to do this afternoon is uh, take some time to observe Jesus in this one scene. and, and, And to sit at his feet, so to speak, and observe him and learn from him. This Savior who is under extreme pressure. And and what I hope will happen for us today is that as we look at Christ and we learn from him and we behold him, my my prayer is that we will actually be changed by his spirit in such a way that it will help prepare us for some of what lies ahead in 2016. And it will help equip us for some of the pressures that maybe we're facing already right now. I want us to focus on how we can and how we are called to live in light of who Jesus is and in light of how he lived under the extreme pressures that he faced. There's basically three things that I want us to see in this passage. One is the crush. Two is confidence and comfort. And then three is the cross. So the crush is what we're going to look at first and then confidence and comfort and then the cross. And as we look at this first part, the crush, here's what I want us to see. Here's the big idea that I hope we walk away with. It's simple. It's just this. Jesus Christ knew intense pressure, 
And he sympathizes with us in our pressure. He knew intense pressure and he sympathizes with us. You see, when we catch up with Jesus Christ here in Mark 3, things are getting increasingly complicated for him. Like I said, he's in danger. It might even look like things are getting out of hand and out of control. You know, lots of artists over the years have have portrayed these scenes of Jesus ministering throughout Galilee. And it often looks like this. It's kind of soft colors and beautiful pastures. And there's Jesus. And he's surrounded by children. Maybe some people sitting. Maybe some lambs frolicking. It all looks beautiful. It looks peaceful. Jesus is there and he's smiling. The scene that Mark paints for us is a lot more realistic than that. It doesn't look like that at all. In fact, the way that he paints it is he says, people had traveled from many, many miles away to come see Jesus. But they weren't sitting there peacefully. No. What's going on here in Mark 3 looks more like a riot than like a picnic. The way he describes this crowd, Mark does, it actually sounds menacing. So look at verses 7 to 10 of Mark chapter 3. He says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. You see, people are desperate to get to Jesus. Not just to see him, but Mark says to actually put their hands on him. So they're traveling extremely long distances for them, 100 plus miles, some of these areas that are mentioned here. There may have been upwards of 10,000 people here, many different backgrounds, many different ethnicities. They're all coming. Verse 8, why are they doing it? It's because they had heard all that he was doing. That's why they came to him. Now, now he had been teaching to this point. If you read the earlier chapters of Mark, you'll find out that he had been teaching. He had been teaching this message of the kingdom. He had been announcing that the kingdom of God was coming. And that's still the essential part of his ministry. It's declaring that message. But at the same time, what is he also doing? He's healing people. He's feeding people. He's casting out evil spirits. And it's because of those things that he's doing that the crowds mob him. In fact, Jesus says, it felt like they were going to crush him. You see, this eagerness of the crowd to get to Jesus, to to touch him, it was so intense that he was actually in physical danger. This is not some kind of like paparazzi, right, behind velvet ropes, clamoring, saying, Jesus, look over here, look over here, we want to get a picture of you. Or can we get a picture with you? Or will you just look over here? It's not just that. These people, literally, they were falling upon him. That's what the word means. When it says that they pressed around him to touch him, they were falling upon him. These are diseased and desperate people. We read elsewhere in Mark of friends carrying their lame friends to him, right? Carrying paralyzed men and women to him. People carrying their children. People with all sorts of diseases coming out of the woodwork flocking to Jesus. It's not a peaceful scene. In fact, the image that comes to my mind when I read this is is straight out of The Walking Dead. It's people limping in all forms of disfigurement and ailments and disease, and they're limping towards Jesus. Maybe it's a little too gruesome. Maybe I'm overdoing it, but that's the image that comes to my mind. It's Christ there in the midst of just these walkers, and they're coming, and they're getting closer, and they're getting closer, and it's claustrophobic. And it's scary. I don't know if you feel comfortable in large crowds. um, But I wonder if you've ever been in a crowd where you felt that like there was this heightened sense of emotion. Maybe there was urgency. People are moving. People are pushing. So much so that you actually began to fear for your safety. Or fear for the safety of your children or your loved ones. Have you ever been in a situation like that? You, You felt like danger could just erupt any minute. We've, we've heard stories of pilgrimages in places like India where pilgrimages take places and they, they, they turn into stampedes and people are crushed underfoot as folks filled with religious zeal want to get to a particular place. 
people crushed under the mobs that are really just their neighbors. <laughs> I can remember back in 2006, there was a blackout on, on, along the East Coast. Any of you, do any of you remember this, a blackout in 2006? I remember being at work, being on the, I worked on the 15th floor, I think, in Chelsea at the time in, 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 in Manhattan. And I remember thinking, um, I think I need to get out of here and get home. And so I made my way down the stairs of the building I worked in. I made my, my way out to 6th Avenue, and I realized that a lot of people had the same idea that I had. Maybe a lot of you had the same idea. And we all started walking and walking. And the streets were filled with people. All the streetlights were out. It was eerily odd in that sense. The only lights were the car lights going back and forth. It was still light out, so it wasn't dark yet, but as we walked and walked and walked, it started to get dark. It got really scary. At one point, I, had to, I lived in Jersey, so I had to take a ferry. That was the only way over. So I went to go get on a Midtown ferry, and there were so many people there, and it was quiet. People were polite, but as the night went on, people were getting more and more eager to get home. They started to push a little more. They started to wait a little less. They were a little less polite, a little more hungry, maybe a little more hangry, and they started pushing. And I'm thinking, any minute, this can get really ugly. I got scared. I just wanted to be home with my wife. (laughs) Thankfully, I made it home in one piece. I don't think there was much to be fearful for, but large crowds are unsettling. In this large crowd, do we look out at Mark 3? Jesus isn't just part of the crowd. He is at the very center of it. Everyone is trying to get to this one person. No wonder he says to his disciples, have a boat ready, lest they crush me. It's kind of like you or I would say, keep the car running because we may need to leave here quickly. Now, on top of the fact that there's a whole crowd converging upon Christ, he also has more problems because there are demons present inside some of these people who want to expose Jesus. You see, while some people were falling over Jesus to get to him, others were falling before him and were calling him the Son of God. These demons themselves were identifying Christ as God. They knew who he was and they were announcing it. Why were they doing this? We, don't, we can't know exactly. They don't say why. But Jesus takes issue with it. He doesn't want them announcing who he is. And it may very well be that they were trying to undermine his ministry, to put him in danger. At the very least, regardless of what their motives were, it was dangerous for him. It was a source of trouble. And and notice this. I want us to notice this contrast here. Here are these people under the control of demons who are crying out to Jesus saying, you are the son of God. He is deity. Mark does not hide that from us, the readers. He is God. And yet, what we see here is his humanity. This, This contrast. He's a person. He's a man in danger. He's like us. And it's very vital for us to really see that in order for us to get the full force of this passage. He's like us in some ways. On top of all that, he's got more problems, believe it or not. Because in verse 6 of Mark 3, the very previous verse that we didn't read, it says that there were very powerful people conspiring to figure out how to destroy Christ. Chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. People wanted him dead. So it's no wonder, it's perhaps for one of these reasons that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea in the first place. He's putting distance between him, perhaps, and some of these people who wanted him dead. Only he gets to this safe place by the sea and the crowds are just out there and in mass anyway. Look, one of the things that I believe Mark wants us to feel here as we read this, it's in every word of it, it's the stress of the situation. The extreme nature of these circumstances and the multifaceted difficulty of it all. And, and, and then he wants us to see Jesus in the middle of all of it. Stretched. If we read from the beginning of Mark, we'll see that he was probably tired. And if we look at this scene, really within the context of everything that's been happening in the Gospel of Mark, we'll realize that this is nothing new for Jesus Christ. This had actually become his life. This is what day-to-day was like for him. It was the rhythm for him daily at this point. 
these multiple stressors, all this danger, all this pressure, every angle. So, so New Hope, I, I believe that all this speaks to us about Jesus. It shows us who he is as both the Son of God and yet a man. But all of this speaks to you and me and the pressures that we are under as well. The pressures that lie ahead of us in this new year. You see, we are meant to see in Jesus his deity, yes, but we're also meant to see his humanity and we're meant to draw comfort from that. Here's why. Because not only was Jesus under extreme pressure, but he sympathizes with us. He sympathizes with us. I want us to take a moment to look at the book of Hebrews, if you would with me. Hebrews 4, chapter, I mean chapter 4, verse 15. I'll read it to you. It says there, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus knew stress deeply. Jesus knew the temptations that we face because of the stress and the pressure that we're under. Let's think about that for a moment. Consider the pressures that you're under currently. Wherever they're coming from, family-related, relationship-related, job-related, ministry-related, personal, whatever they are, health-related, financially, what, under, what, what pressures are you under now? You might say, well, they're nothing compared to Jesus' pressures. Yeah, probably not. But what are they? What are you facing? Maybe they're job-related. Maybe it's projects behind, behind schedule. Assignments due if you're in school. Maybe you're a parent and your pressures come from the many demands being placed upon you as a parent. Your kids are sick. Your kids are needing more attention than you have time to give them. Maybe your kids are in need of help. Maybe it's something as simple as your kids need a haircut. There are emails to respond to. There are Christmas cards to write. Of course, if you haven't done that yet, then I won't judge you. That's okay. Maybe there are thank you notes to write in response to the cards and gifts. Maybe there are friends that you owe a phone call to or a text. Maybe there are people in your small group that you need to connect with and you've been putting it off and you need to get together with them. Maybe there are bills to be paid. Maybe there are expense reports to be filled out. Maybe there's a vacation to be planned. And plus, you you need to to work out and, and eat better from the most mundane things to the most vital things, from getting the oil changed on your car to coming up with a retirement plan. You've got the full spectrum, perhaps, of pressures. All these tasks, distinct tasks, interrelated tasks, and you get nervous when you even start listing them because you start thinking of one, and as soon as you start working on it, the others start creeping up, and you think, oh, there's more to do here. We give ourselves to one task and three others distract us from it. They hover around, calling for our attention. And then, and then, perhaps some of you struggle with this, there's this constant feeling that you're forgetting something. That, that feeling that you're neglecting something and it's going to come back to bite you. You just can't recall what it was. And then add on to all of that, maybe whatever New Year's resolutions you came up with. that You just stack up on top of all those other pressures. I was, I was at my friend's home on Friday night, a couple that's just really dear to us. We, we love them. They love Jesus. They love the church. They love each other. They serve in so many ways, so many people, and yet they, they told us that they are struggling to find joy in all the busyness of their life. They said they're struggling to find joy in the, even the service that they give to God and to others. They, they want to find joy, but they're overwhelmed with so much on their plates. So they're wondering, what do we do? 
There's the kids, and there's ministry, and then there's work, and then there's home, and then there's their relationship, their marriage. There's so much. What do they say no to? What, do they, what should they pull out of and just cut off and say, we can't do that anymore? What should they give double attention to and just renew their commitment to? Can, can you relate to feeling that way? I know that as my friends were telling me how they felt, I felt like everything they said resonated with me. I, they weren't alone. And then they said, add to all of that, all these responsibilities and all these pressures, they said, on top of it, the thing that makes us feel worse is the feeling that we're not doing anything really well right now. We're stretched so thin that nothing is really getting enough attention. My kids aren't being loved as much as they should be loved. My spouse is being neglected. We're not living up to my, I'm not living up to my potential. I'm not doing the best with, with what God's given me. I'm falling short because I'm spread way too thin. And all of that, of course, leads to different kinds of temptations. It leads to sin in our lives as we try to respond to those manifold pressures. Maybe there's a temptation to just feel despair. Maybe there's a temptation to be angry, to take it out on other people. Maybe it's a temptation to just be frustrated. How hard is it for us to be in the midst of all these pressures and say deeply, it is well with my soul. It is well. So often, we're shouting, it's not well. Or maybe we're saying it's well, but the people in our lives don't feel like it's well because we're not treating them like it's well. So we're tempted to abandon our responsibilities altogether. Or, or some of you, maybe you do this. We're tempted to over, continue to overextend ourselves because if we don't, people are going to be displeased with us. And so we need to keep stretching ourselves, keep putting out more effort, just keep pretending that everything's okay in order to please Maybe we face the temptation to doubt that God is really for us and that he really loves us and that he's really caring for us. We start to doubt that God is really able to protect us and preserve us. These are just some of the ways that we're tempted. Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in all ways like us. He didn't fall into these sins, but he was tempted towards all of these things in the midst of what was going on in places like Mark 3. Maybe it's the temptation to escape from it all through whatever, through some kind of addiction, through some kind of use of a substance, whether it's alcohol, whether it's drug, whether it's ESPN, whether it's sports, whether it's gambling, whatever it is, to just escape and for a little while forget that all these pressures are there. Of course, the pressures don't disappear, do they? Or maybe it's to escape through fantasy, to imagine a better world. How many of us are tempted towards this? To imagine a world where we're not experiencing all this pressure. A better life. A better life where my relationships aren't so taxing. A better life where I'm not so stretched. And this leads us, it can lead us down a pathway towards anything from pornography to adultery to shipwrecking everything. Putting our hopes in, if something just changed here, maybe it's the, if, if I just won the Powerball, I don't know, it could be anything, would just relieve all this pressure. Jesus knows all of these pressures, and he knows these temptations. In fact, he knew greater pressure than than us. And yet, get this, guys. In spite of all that, it doesn't lead Jesus to dismiss our pressures as insignificant complaints or as petty. He doesn't do that. Look, the, the point of Hebrews 4, which I just read to you, It's not this. It's not, look, Jesus had it way worse than you, so stop complaining. That's not what Jesus says to us. It's what we do sometimes, isn't it? Do you ever do that? Someone complains to you that they're under a lot of, they're just overworked. And our inner response might be, you think you have it bad. You think you've got a lot on your plate. Man, you you don't know the half. Right? Some guy in your small group says, man, I'm so busy this week. You're like, really? You're like, oh yeah, I'll pray for you. But inside, you're like, oh man, seriously? Wait till, wait till you get out of school. Then you'll know what busy means. Wait till, you have, wait till you get married. Wait till you have kids. There's like this self-righteousness, right? You're not nearly as busy as I am. Come on. If you knew the pressure I was under, you wouldn't be complaining. That's not how Jesus speaks to us. Of course he had it far worse than we did. No doubt. And listen, 
It's for that very reason that we can bring our complaints and bring our pressures to him. Jesus looks at the stress that we are under and the temptations that that stress brings, and he actually sympathizes with us, Hebrews 4 says. Literally, that means he feels with us. The king of creation, the creator himself, feels it with us. And he cares. Hebrews 2.18 says this, For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he suffered when being tempted in places like by that sea when he was surrounded by people, he is able to help us when we are tempted. Here's the takeaway, guys. Why? Well, here's why this matters. It's because our Savior knows what it's like to live under the stress of expectations and demands. We can draw near to the throne of grace and ask for help. Boldly. Honestly. Without shame. Some of, some of you maybe are... Maybe you're at the point of cracking under the pressure that you're under. Maybe you're You're confused. <laughs> You're overwhelmed. You're tired. You're exhausted. And Jesus looks and he says, I know. I know. Receive grace from me. Grace in your time of need. There was an article uh, uh, last year um, in, in the Scientific American. It was, there was a, it was a report on a study which said, quote, urbanites are more likely to suffer from anxiety and depression. Oh, really? Why? I'll tell you. A number of possible culprits are now under investigation. All right, look, these are, okay, so this is a study. These are, these are things they're investigating as possible causes of urbanites' extreme um, depression and anxiety. Among them may be, may be social pressure in both the form of greater competition and weaker community ties. I think, I, think I, I didn't conduct this study, but I think I could have come to these same conclusions without any, looking at any data at all other than my own life and maybe the lives of the people closest to me. It's kind of obvious, right? Some of you are stretched. Some of you, like I said here, maybe beyond, they're at the point of cracking. And if not today, maybe earlier this week you were at the tipping point. Or maybe later on this year you're going to be at the tipping point between the, fa- the pressures of family and work and just metro New York culture. If you've gotten back from vacation recently, maybe you're refreshed, but you're also thinking, man, it was a lot slower where I was on vacation. This is a whole different world here that I've come back to. And these pressures, they leave us susceptible. There's no doubt about it, and Jesus knows us. These pressures leave us vulnerable to sin. Exhaustion and and, and illness even come as a result of the pressures we're under. Haven't you seen this in your own life? I know my wife can testify to this. That there's a correlation between how drained and exhausted I am and how angry and self-righteous and self-pitying and impatient I am. And the same is probably true for you. We're under pressure, and so one of the ways we're tempted to sin is to apply more pressure to other people. They become obstacles to us. If I'm feeling the press, I'm going to press you too. Or maybe we turn to things and look to them to bring us distraction, to bring us rest. Our Savior says to us, he says to us this afternoon, that I know the pressure, I know the temptations, I sympathize you in the midst, with you in the midst of it. He did not succumb to the temptations. He never, ever sinned in the midst of it. And that's why he can rescue us. That brings us right into the second thing I want us to see here, which we'll look at more fast, more quickly. I want us to see confidence and comfort in Jesus. Here's the, here's the big idea for this piece that I want us to come away with. Jesus believed in God, and he provides us with the grace we need to believe. Jesus believed in God. How did he deal with the pressures he was under? Faith. And, and he's able to provide us with the grace we need to believe too. So, so look, at, look how Jesus responds to pressure in this, in this account that we just read in Mark 3. What he does is he continues doing what God called him to do. He keeps teaching, he keeps healing, he keeps casting out demons. In fact, throughout the book of Mark, what we see is that he keeps doing what he was sent to do. 
And notice, he does this in detailed, careful ways. Jesus deals with people so carefully according to their specific needs, to their personal needs. So when he comes across hungry people, what does he do? He, he fe- it's not just like one size fits all with Jesus, right? The, the hungry, he feeds them. The sick, he heals them. Those who are possessed, those who are, who are under the, the control of evil spirits, he, he, he frees them, brings them liberation. And notice that he doesn't just throw all these people in together. As, as just, the demon-possessed people are mentioned separately from the ill people. He differentiates wisely between these different folks and their specific needs. And he continues all along the way as he's doing all this stuff, he continues to proclaim the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is arriving. This kingdom is coming where hunger will be no more. Where there will be no more need for liberating people from demonic powers. Where there will be no more need for healing because all sickness will be done away with. There will be no more need for comforting and rescuing because every tear will be wiped away in this kingdom that's coming, a kingdom where all of our needs will be fully addressed perfectly. Hunger, illness, bondage, all of it. He continues to preach this message and he continues to say, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. He doesn't get away from that message no matter what comes at him. Mark 1.15 says, here's what Jesus preached in a nutshell. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's how we become a part of this kingdom where everything's going to be all right and all the pressure is going to be finally eradicated. How do we become a part of that kingdom? By repenting and believing the gospel. But notice in our passage today that as Jesus continues that mission, as he continues doing all those things, he also takes these very interesting measures to preserve himself, to make sure that he could continue to keep doing the work that God gave him to do. Look at, look at verse 7. It says, he withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Why did he do that? It's very, it's, it is very likely that he withdrew because he was getting away from some of the pressures that he was encountering where he was previously. Pharisees and, Her- and, and Herodians, as we saw before, were conspiring to kill him. This word withdraw, sometimes in the New Testament, it's used to talk about kind of fleeing from, putting some distance between you and danger. He moves. He keeps doing the same work, but he does it in a new, safer place. Verse 9 says he had a boat prepared for him. Why? he might need to get out of there. In many places throughout the, not in many, but in some places throughout the Gospels, Jesus um, would use a boat as a way to, uh, to, to pre- he would stand on a boat off the shore and preach to people on the shore. Maybe you're aware of this. It enabled him to put a little safe distance between him and the crowds. It also enabled him to be able to speak out on a lake and just project his voice better and just better acoustics, I think, and all that. But here, it doesn't seem like that's his goal. Here he's saying, have a boat ready, because this might get very dangerous. I might get crushed here. Again, it's Jesus and his humanity. In the very next verses, if we read, if we kept reading verse 13 and on, beyond the section that we're focusing on today, we'll see that Jesus leaves this area altogether, and he goes up to a mountain, and there he prays. Matthew tells us he spends the night in prayer. What, what, why does he leave? Why? He needs to get out of there. He needs to get alone with his father. You see, Jesus was actually taking healthy measures to ensure his own safety. He's preserving himself. So on the one hand, he's Jesus Christ, filled with faith in the father, and yet at the same time, he's willing to take measures to preserve his own life, to stay healthy and stay on mission. All these all these measures he's taking, and I guess this is what I really want us to see, is that all these measures he's taking are 100% in sync with God the Father's plan. Jesus knows that it's not time for him to die yet. There's work to do. When the demons fall before him and begin to call him the Son of God, what does he do? He rebukes them sharply. He instructs them, stop saying that, and they stop. He strictly orders them not to make him known. Why? Because it's not time for him to go public yet with his identity. The obedient completion of his mission required that that not happen yet. And so he shuts up the demons. 
Here's, here's what we should see. In the face of all this pressure, at every step, Jesus is showing us what it looks like to have faith in God and to be in tune with God's mission at every step. Every measure is taken consciously in the context of God's bigger picture. Jesus doesn't miss the forest for the trees. He doesn't focus on the immediate pressure so much that he forgets, why am I here and what is life about and what am I supposed to be doing here? As I'm so likely to do. He's oriented to the Father's plan and he sees even the pressures he's under in light of the fact that God the Father does have a plan. This is part of it. But his plan is bigger than this. He trusts the Father. Jesus Christ. We can lose sight of this because we know that Jesus Christ is the perfect Son of God. But we, we can easily lose sight of this. Jesus Christ was a man who lived by faith. Hard-bought faith. Christ could not always entrust himself to the people around him, could he? They were often a danger to him. In the book of John, it talks about the fact that Jesus looks out amongst the crowd and he he refuses to entrust himself to them. Interesting. And yet the same Jesus Christ is willing to entrust himself at every step to his Father. He's filled with faith and trust towards him. That was the answer. That faith that enabled him to, to, to work and rest. Say yes to some ministry and say no to other ministry. It enabled him to not be distracted. You know, Jesus was able to say no to some people who wanted to be healed and helped, wasn't he? He said yes in some cases, and in other cases, he said, if we read back in Mark 1, Mark 2, I think it is, you'll you'll see an instance there where, where Jesus Christ is by himself. He had just finished healing a multitude of people, casting out demons as well. He breaks off to go to be on his own and meet with the Father in prayer all night. His disciples come to him and say, where have you been, Jesus? Everyone's looking for you. Come back. There's more people to heal. There's more people to to rescue. And he says, no, I have to keep moving. There's another place for me to be. He's willing to say no to obvious ministry opportunities because there are other ministry needs that he is called to. Isn't that a skill? It would be great for us to develop that kind of skill, right? To be able to say no, when to say no, when to say yes, without guilt, without feeling horrible. Jesus Christ could leave a crowd and go to the mountain and pray without a twinge of guilt over it. He could get a boat ready for himself without feeling like bad because, oh, he wasn't trusting God enough. No, it wasn't a matter of lack of trust. And, 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 and here's the thing, guys. Jesus Christ was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit himself granted him this kind of faith to be able to entrust himself to God. And the same Holy Spirit, if we believe in Jesus Christ, is in us. Living and vibrantly working faith in us so that we can find the same kind, we can live with the same kind of purpose and confidence in the midst of our pressures. Because the spirit who abides in Christ abides in us. Now, that doesn't mean that we're necessarily always going to have the same kind of clarity that Jesus did. We're going to struggle with knowing when to say yes and when to say no to ministry opportunities, when to say yes and when to say no to certain needs. But we can go to him and pray, can't we? We can ask him for the wisdom. We can ask him for the clarity. Say, Lord, show me. What are you calling me to? What are you calling me to just cut off and say, I can't do this anymore? Help me. Help me know where, what to prioritize and what to and what not to. We can ask him. And, and, and at this much we know at least. This much we know. We are not. We don't have infinite time. Bandwidth abilities do we? We are finite. We are limited. And when we ignore that. And just press on and say I can do everything. We are not glorifying God. God created us with weakness. He created us with frailty. He made us human. And we glorify him when we embrace that. When we embrace our weakness, we live in the light of it. We ask him for strength, but we also realize that we cannot do it all. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's Hebrews 4, 14. Let us hold fast our confession. Other words, let us keep believing. 
Let's draw close to the, to the throne of grace and keep believing. Believing what? Believing that our sympathetic Savior is generous and he's powerful. He sympathizes with us and he's also able to give us all the grace we need to live under the circumstances that we find ourselves in now. You see, what we need in 2016 is not more confidence in ourselves. We don't, ultimately, what we, we don't even need better time management skills. That would help, but it's not what we need ultimately. We don't need better multitasking abilities, ultimately. In the end, we don't need to, just the strength to push through. No. Hebrew says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. <laughs> push through to the throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help in time of need. 2016 for us will be, we know this much, a time of need. Last point for us to see here. It's the cross. It's the cross. And here's the big idea I want us to get away from here is Jesus was not only under pressure there by the sea, by that sea, Jesus himself was crushed for us so that we can find identity and rest in him. He was crushed for us so that we can find identity and rest in him. I just read it a moment ago from Hebrews 4.14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold our confession. He goes on to say, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is our high priest. Jesus is not just an example to us of how to deal with pressures of life. No. He's a high priest, which means he made atonement for us. He paid for us. Look, the stresses of life in Metro New York are not anything to scoff at. They are serious. And yet, and yet it's weird because I think that in some warped way, some of us might actually value our harried, overextended lifestyles. Even though we see them as unhealthy, we might actually find some kind of comfort in them. Like we, we, we wear them like a badge of, of, of honor. Like our, our busyness means that we're strong. It means that we're overachievers. It demands respect. We find our identity at times in the pressures that we're under. Like, like I'm the guy who works hardest. I'm the guy who doesn't say no, always says yes, and will go the extra mile. I'm the church member who never stops serving. I don't even need to be asked. I take on every challenge. I outperform my peers. In the 1990s, there was this sketch comedy show called In Living Color. Does anyone remember In Living Color if you're old enough? It was kind of like uh, Saturday Night Live, but it was, uh, it was blacker and I think funnier, personally. But in any case, there was, there was, um, there was a sketch in this show about this family, a Jamaican family living in New York. I don't know if any of you remember this. But the whole joke, the ongoing joke in this Jamaican family is that it was a bunch of, of, of folks all living in an apartment building and all of them had multiple jobs. Like, lots and lots of jobs. So the husband would come home and say, I just got home from, from driving the bus. And the wife's like, oh, sit down, rest, I'll make you some food. He's like, rest? I can't rest, I got 12 jobs. And he'd take off his uniform, he'd have another uniform underneath it. And he'd go out to work that job. The wife had like 15 jobs. Everyone, the, the son was the lazy one who just hung around all day. He only had like five jobs. He was a lazy underachiever in the family. And I think one of the reasons I find that funny is because I can see some, some reality in that. Like, they each took pride in how much they didn't sleep and just worked. We have this fear, some of us, that if we don't live that way, then we're not going to be respected. We're not going to be acknowledged. We're not going to be promoted. We're not even going to have self-respect. Our parents are going to be disappointed in us if we don't live that way. So we, so we place ourselves under extreme pressure, and we actually find our identity in it. Jesus calls us away from that, and he says, stop that. Some of us have found ourselves under pressure our whole life. Maybe it started with your parents who pushed you to live up to their expectations. 
Maybe they said, look, overachieve. You can do better. Maybe you, you just need to work harder. You can do more. And, and, you, and some of you, maybe you've been hearing that so long that it actually sounds like the voice of God saying that to you. But it's not the voice of God. Here's the voice of God. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls. How can Jesus give us that kind of rest? It's because he is our high priest. The same Jesus who said on that day in, in, at, at, by the sea, he said, get the boat ready because I might get crushed here. That same Jesus later on would be willing to be crushed by another mob altogether. Not by people who wanted to touch him and be healed, but by people who wanted him dead. Isaiah 53.10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. To crush him for us. All of the pressures that Jesus was under during his time on this earth culminated with him hanging on a cross because someone had to pay for our failure to live perfectly by faith the way he did. Someone had to pay for our attempts to find identity in in things other than God, whether it's our accomplishments or our high productivity. Someone had to pay for our failure to deal with pressures in a God-honoring way. Someone had to deal with our, had to pay for our tendency to prioritize selfishly and badly. Someone had to pay for our tendency to see other people as obstacles and to lash out at others because of the pressure we're under. Someone had to pay for that so that we would not be crushed under the weight of God's judgment, Jesus Christ was. And he calls us to believe that. And he calls us to admit that we do not have the resources within ourselves to live well and to live joyfully in our present circumstances. He calls us to admit that we can't just keep smiling and push on. Instead, he says, come to me. We need to go to him exhausted. We need to go to him desperate and find eternal rest. To trust that he is satisfied with us in Christ. Do you realize that? That because what Jesus has done for us, God is satisfied with us? He's not calling us. For those of us who know Jesus by faith, he's not calling us to be more productive. That's not what our relationship with him depends on. He's not calling on us to do more, overachieve. His words to us essentially are words of comfort that say, I receive you in Christ. Christ overachieved. He did everything necessary to buy you a place with me. And now you have full acceptance full forgiveness, and you can rest. He rejoices over us. If we are in Christ, do you realize this, that God doesn't just accept you begrudgingly because he has to on a technicality because Jesus died for you? Zephaniah says he rejoices over us with gladness. He welcomes us like a groom welcomes his bride. Do you realize this? That God is actually happy to see you. He doesn't just love you in Christ. He actually likes you too. We are the apple of his eye, Psalm 17, 8 says. And we cannot be separated from his love, Romans 8 says. So resting means believing. It means more than this, but it means at least believing that God is satisfied with us because of Jesus Christ, that we have acceptance with him. So that doesn't mean that living under the pressures of life is going to be easy. It doesn't mean that it doesn't require effort, but it means that it requires effort from the place of acceptance, not effort as earning. The gospel doesn't free us from the stress of life, does it? It will one day, but it doesn't now. When the... When When the clouds roll back like a scroll, we sang earlier, in that day, we will be relieved of the pressures we're under. Until then, what we have in the gospel are resources to be able to deal with the pressures we're under in a completely different way from the way that we tend to naturally. 
We don't need to measure our worth in terms of how much we're getting done, in terms of productivity. That's good news. None of that defines us. If we are in Christ, if you have believed in Christ, then that's what defines you, your unity to him. So I urge you to believe in Christ if you haven't and find rest and acceptance in him. I'm going to end just by reminding you of my friends that I told you about before, my friends that were struggling to figure out how to live joyfully and when their plates are overflowing and they don't know what to do, when they're stretched so, so thin. That night as we talked with each other about this on Friday and they shared their hearts and talked to them about mine, we, we ended up reminding each other of God's acceptance of us. We reminded each other that God doesn't view us in terms of our efficiency and accomplishments, but he views us as robed in the righteousness of Christ. And we reminded each other that God has the power to work through us and he has the power to even work in us and Reminded him, reminded each other that he even had the power to work, even if we pulled back from responsibilities and ministries that we could no longer give ourselves to. And then we prayed. We prayed to our sympathizing Savior, and we asked for faith. We asked him for wisdom to know when to say yes and when to say no. We asked him with help, for help to believe and to trust in him. So let's do that now as we close. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that as this new year is upon us, we need some things a lot more than we need um, productivity apps on our phone to use and, and guidelines for increased efficiency. We need some things way more than that. We need more than just exercise and healthy diet and reasonable amount of sleep. All those things are great. Give them to us, we pray, Lord, but we need more than that. We need you by your spirit to comfort us. We need you by your spirit to give us rest. We need you by your spirit to remind us of what you've done for us in Christ, our identity in him. We pray that you would do it and that you'd also give us wisdom, Lord, to know how to prioritize what to say yes to and not. Lord, we pray that you would grant us reprieve, that you would grant us rest in Jesus Christ for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.